for every dollar of funding, women-led startups generated 78 cents, whereas male-led startups generated just 31 cents. So there's a, there's a real blind spot here on what we could be doing for the world if we were really you know, focused on diversity. Welcome to The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at, you've guessed it, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wonder for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wonder are productivity and human behavior specialists who use technology to help us humans on our digital journey from disruption to transformation. Check them out at wonder.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R.com. I'm Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we regularly meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. This week, we catch up with Laura Stebbing. Laura is co-CEO of Accelerate Her, an organization focused on addressing the underrepresentation of women in technology. She also builds global partnerships that drive impact for purpose-driven organizations on issues from technology and gender to entrepreneurship and human rights. Laura was Partnerships Director of the Cherry Blair Foundation for Women and works extensively in the field of human rights. In the next 45 minutes, we find out about growing up in an unstable Zimbabwe, the important difference between mentorship and sponsorship, how Laura's work at Accelerate Her is changing gender equality and how gender roles have been set back due to the pandemic. But first, Laura explains why diversity is so important. I think on a macro level, you know, lack of diversity just kind of makes me furious. I think that we'd be living in such a better, safer world, you know, without the extent of the climate change issues and global poverty and wars if we if we had a mix of people um, making the decisions. You know, I think you can just look at the pandemic and seeing that countries led by women have had a, have generally taken a very different approach and in often cases been more successful. You know, I think why is it important looking at George Floyd anniversary coming up, just so unacceptable that that people are treated differently and, and killed for the colour of their skin. I don't know if you've read the book Invisible Women by Carolyn Carita Perez, who talks about the gender data gap and talks about how our whole society, all of our societies are, you know, based with white men in mind. They're the kind of standard, whereas everyone else is the other. And so, you know, whether it's the fact that drug trials are done on men so they can kind of get a clearer picture without women's hormonal biases or crash test dummies built on men's dimensions or public toilets that are designed with the same square footage for men and women, despite the fact that women take three times longer or more than three times longer because at any one time they're either pregnant or, you know, bringing in a dependent or, you know, have their period or a UTI or whatever it is, or cities that are designed where the transport goes in and out of the centre rather than around the circumference, which is what you need if you're dropping off children at nursery. And I think, you know, looking at society and the way that it's structured, it's just so frustrating. Um, and with with toilets, you can, you know, laugh at the, the cues, but with other things, it's fatal. And I think for me, that's what's so frustrating. And the reason I'm particularly interested in tech, which is obviously where Accelerate Her um, is working, is that the future is technology. And yet, you know, at the moment, the future is not looking very equitable. Um, there's, you know, whether you're looking at the investment side of things, there's a, an organization called Project Diane that did some, did some research between 2009 and 2017, where they found that of the $424 billion that went into tech venture capital, 
only 0.0006% of it went to startups led by black women. In Europe, just you know, 90% of VC money went to all male startup teams. And you know, on top of that, women make up just 12% of, of senior leadership positions in technology and just a third of the overall foot workforce. And that's a real issue for, you know, for many reasons. But for one, you know, women and, and underrepresented groups, you know, aren't getting into the jobs of the future. The great, where the money is, where the excitement is. For two, they're not the makers. Um, and so the products that we're, that we're building, you know, aren't designed with those people in mind. You know, take the kind of cohesive iPhone out, the health app that didn't include menstruation or the fact that, you know, when you're, building products that, that are built by, you know, one kind of person, they, they're deeply biased. And, you know, for example, Amazon, when they did that recruitment tool that, that actively deprioritized women's applications and had to be quickly brought, you know, taken down. And then, you know, I think there's, there's also a financial value that we're, we're kind of missing out on here in that, you know, they've shown that the Boston Consulting Group and, and Mass Challenge did a report in 2019 that showed for every dollar of funding, women-led startups generated 78 cents, whereas male-led startups generated just 31 cents. So there's a, there's a real blind spot here on what we could be doing for the world if we were really, you know, focused on diversity and, uh, and it's just a crying shame that we're not. Laura. It is just so good to have you on the show with us today. Thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you for having me. It's so, so lovely to be here. Laura, you have the heart of a philanthropist, but the savvy of a very astute businesswoman. I'd mm. love for you to share with our listeners your incredible story. So starting with things that inspired you as a child in Zimbabwe and how you've pretty much woven all of that into your passions and your career in Europe. I actually grew up in Botswana until I was 11 and then um, moved to Zimbabwe and lived there until I was 19. And I guess, you know, living in Zimbabwe in the late 90s was um, a really interesting place to be in that it was a kind of, you know, political um, melting pot. The, 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 you know, the, the economy was in, in, in sort of free fall. Um, given um, Mugabe was unleashing his, um, you know, the war vets, um, there was a you know, massive land redistribution program. Um, he was you know, trying to gain absolute power. Um, you would be, you know, marching um, for different kind of civil rights every weekend. Um, at school, you were kind of going in every day and everyone was pouring over the newspapers and, you know, desperately were looking at what was happening there. Um, you know, that was, there was horrendous, um, poverty and, and really kind of crazy things going on every day. You'd go for to the shops and suddenly there'd just be nothing in there or you'd go for a coffee and one day it was, you know, two Zimbabwe dollars. The next it was 20. The next it was 40. And, you know, everyone was running around, um, carrying their money in, in, in wheelbarrows. So it was quite an extraordinary place to be. And I think after a while I was pretty desperate to get out. Um, and, and had a bit of a sliding doors moment in that I came to the UK, which we used to call Harare North. Uh, it was always a real like look, look, look into the you know the wider world of what was going on, and and I had a um, had a place at university in in Germany because I spoke German because I'd done an exchange year along the way, and I had a place in uh, Cape Town for the kind of following year, um, but I really wanted to be go to university in the UK. And had applied for a scholarship at London School of Economics because my parents couldn't afford to, to pay the full kind of foreign fees and thought the chances were about 1% that I would get it. But, um, so I was kind of looking at what would happen and ended up, um, getting it and getting a full scholarship and ending up being able to study in the UK. And, 
I will have been here for 20 years um, in June, actually now, um, which is a bit bonkers. And um, it's quite, yeah, it's quite crazy to think of, um, you know, all the different routes that my life could have taken if I'd gone to Germany or, or stayed in Africa at Cape Town. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, what led me um, down this, the route of the kind of career that I've then taken was the passions that I got out of, out of living in Africa in this kind of quite crazy time and, um, and really seeing the incredible sort of resilience and independence and courage of people around me. And I'm just interested just to hear about going back to Zimbabwe, some of the, the legal work that you've done on death row. Could you share a little bit about that with us? Uh, straight after uni, I was working for the British Home Office in criminal justice policy, and it was it was looking at um, the Stephen Lawrence murder and and a lot of the the fact that the police, the Metropolitan Police, was sort of deemed institutionally racist, and there were a lot of five year plans and looking at what was what what could be done and to change that and. That was all really interesting, but I felt for me very far away from the actual people on the ground who were, um, who were in kind of, who were in some of the worst situations on earth. And I ended up going to a lecture by Clive Stafford Smith, who founded a, an organization called Reprieve in the US, actually, in New Orleans. He is an extraordinary death row lawyer. Um, and I was pretty soon on a plane out to New Orleans and uh, Louisiana to, to, to support as an intern. It was it was really focused on you know research investigation that I could do looking into mitigation for the guys that were on death row and a lot of a lot of visiting as well so um, that was the kind of key part was was trying to I guess keep their spirits going because these were uh, men that had been on death row for you know often tens of years with very little kind of hope in sight and. Uh, yeah, that was the visiting them was the the best bit, albeit pretty scary in that um, not for seeing them, but more in terms of the the kind of the setup of I suppose power um, and what that looks like when you're uh, yeah demonizing the the worst. Well, you well, there's no sort of people that are thought of as the worst of the worst. So you would kind of pootle along with your little briefcase and go down long corridors and have clanging doors all the way until you ended up getting to the guys and, and realizing that once you thought, once you saw them and spent time with them and, and talked about their story, you know, a lot of the time, these are not the worst of the worst at all. They're just the people that couldn't afford decent rep representation that ended up getting caught up in, you know, a gang murder or a crime of passion or something that went wrong that, that if they weren't poor and if they weren't overwhelmingly black, they wouldn't have ended up in that situation um, most of the time. So that was a really kind of, yeah, extraordinary period of my life, actually working there and working with some some amazing people. And later on that year, I went and did some work for Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights in Zimbabwe, again, with some pretty incredible people. They were risking their lives every day to be documenting and um, and supporting people that were, yeah, people across Zimbabwe. I remember Arnold Tsunga, who was the the founder there, um, and, and some of the other lawyers, we interviewed me and sat around a table and one was saying, so last last week I was in prison for a couple of days, tortured. The next one was said, yeah, I got picked up over the weekend. And um, they looked at me and said, how do you feel about that? <laughs> and I said, well, I really care about my country and this is all really important, but could I possibly uh, work from home or not be in a scenario where I'm going to be picked up in that way? Um, so I ended up writing a report on Operation Murabatsvina, which at the time was um, happening and was a was an awful initiative by the government to sweep up townships and that were that were supporting the opposition. Sure, incredible. It's so clear how 
your background and what you've done has led you to where you are today. Like there's very few people where it's as crystal clear as it is with you. And I just love how everything that you've touched has this very clear element of human rights to it. And in terms of gender parity, it's also a human rights issue that, that mm. we're dealing with, you know. And yeah, yeah. I just it, it really is. It's a beautiful golden thread that runs through your career. So let's let's turn a little bit to the work that you did with the Sherry Blair Foundation. Um, you've raised a lot of funds within partnerships there at your role there. Through the work that you did there at the Sherry Blair Foundation, you would have definitely had and gained insight into a lot of data and a lot of information that is very relevant to the future of work. Can you open us up to that a little bit? Can you share some of the insights that you learned there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a really fascinating place to work in that Founded by Cherie Blair, who, as you'll know, was the first kind of full-time working um, partner of a, of a serving prime minister. And she said the, the only reason she was able to do that was the power of technology and the fact that she could be kind of writing, she was a barrister, writing her briefs, you know, downstairs, popping up to say hello to visiting, visiting dignitaries and then kind of carrying on. Um, and she was a huge techie. I remember going to Mobile World Congress with her and having to kind of drag her out of the scrum because because she was there looking at what what was happening next. And I think for me, that's what really turned me onto the the sort of power of technology and the power of it to, uh, well, to empower women. And I think for for us in terms of the future of work, it was all around, um, the, the organization is all around driving entrepreneurship for women in, in developing and emerging economies, but really getting corporate backing and, and support for that. So Early on, we did a study um, with the U.S. State Department that was trying to show the, the financial value of, invest, of of closing the gender gap in mobile phone ownership, found a 300 million person gender gap, but an $11 billion opportunity. I think what was exciting there was the opportunity to for companies then to get involved, whether that was you know Vodafone or or various other companies that wanted to jump in and do projects that were working with these women. Um, and I think from the women's perspective, the drive of what we were doing was global connection. So the ability to be running a small project in Rwanda, but working with a mentor who was working at Bank of America uh, on strategy and how, and spending an hour a month with a woman in Rwanda to help her build her business and kind of making those global connections. Um, you know, across the, across the world um, was so exciting and kind of, I think, you know, future leading really. And I think it was obvious from that moment, that's where I wanted to spend my attention and um, ended up meeting Brent Hoberman and Poppy Gay, who had just started to accelerate her and, and were kind of wanting to do that on a macro scale. So um, that was how I got into that. So am I hearing you correct in that Sherry's vision was very much that the best way to empower, in her case, it was woman because she had this personal passion for working woman. But you can extrapolate that more broadly and say, do you believe that the heart of empowerment to underrepresented groups lies in entrepreneurship? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, 
it was very much Cherie's view and the view of the organization, the foundation, that um, that entrepreneurship was the driver for uh, you know the ability to be empowered and to and to actually empower your community as well. And we saw that time and time again, you know, in all the different places that we worked. How you know the it's the whole thing. And I think having grown up in Africa, you you can get quite jaded about the concept of, you know, aid and, and just handing things out. Whereas actually the, the excitement of trade and the ability to, to support women to build their businesses and to, you know, do that across borders, um, where you're making kind of critical connections and where you, where you're utilizing technology. That was definitely the, the holy grail and a really exciting stuff, exciting bit about what we were doing. Love it. I, I personally share a very similar view, which is why naturally, you know, I gravitated towards a project like Accelerate Her, of course, and and things like that, which we will talk a little bit, you know, about later in the conversation as well. As you know, the, the podcast is about the future of work, and we're going to stay with the future of work and with gender parity. And I'm going to sort of lead into that. I'm going to, something I read re- in a recent interview, you spoke about the sponsoring of women in business rather than the mentoring of them. Can you elaborate on that and just then lead that into gender parity in, in the future of work? Women tend to be over-mentored um, and under-sponsored. So, you know, with I think this, the stat is that women have three times more mentors than men. And um, and mentoring obviously has a place and is and is really important for for being able to you know get the advice and reach out to people that have done, done things you know ahead of you differently from you. Um, you know, have that kind of belief. But actually what we see is so critical and what happens with men is sponsoring. And that's the idea that when you're not in the room, you have someone talk, you know, speaking on your behalf. You have someone that will say, come to this meeting or that will give you a piece of work that, um, that widens your skills in an area that's going to be critical for your kind of future success. So, you know, you have, we have, uh, one of the top CEOs, I won't name them, but in the UK, um, said that he used to um, he started cycling to work and then suddenly realized that actually when he got to work in the locker room, there were all these men that were kind of hanging out and that's where they got to know each other. And, you know, then that's where sort of deals happen. And actually he, he, he realized that and went, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm carving out opportunities to have similar type sort of relationships and, and touch points with women because they just wouldn't be getting that kind of informal exposure. So for, for me, sponsorship is one of the critical pieces to getting to gender parity. And I think, I think we should be ensuring that that's, um, that, that's one of the kind of cornerstones that you put in place alongside things like shared care, which is, is absolutely essential as well. And, um, and then flexible work. For me, the, the future of work with gender parity looks like on, on the one hand, real innovation in products and services. So I love products like LV, for example, you know, the, pelvic floor app designed by Tanya, Tanya Bowler, or some really exciting, you know, femtech products, products that, that are, you know, like third love and new raw design, just things that, that, um, have come up that, um, that are designed with, by women with women's bodies in mind. And I think if we're really kind of harnessing everybody, you're going to come up with so much more innovation. So on that side, that is what that, that's where that could get to, um, but also in obviously in terms of ways of working. You know, I, I think 
I'm an operator an operator network for January Ventures and just love, which is a, a, a small fund that supports women's and, and underrepresented founders. And, uh, and it's so exciting to see some of the products and, and services and ways of working that they come up with. I think looking at ways of working which, which enable success for, for women and underrepresented groups across the board is also where we'd see that parity. So for example, Channel 4, you know, led by Alex Mann, I think one of the first companies I've seen to put in place a menopause policy, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of organizations just wouldn't be thinking about, but actually is crucial and just makes life better for, and for so many women. So my view with this whole, with the pandemic is that there's been a real shakeup, hopefully, and we need to be thinking about how we can build back feminist. Um, so really building back in a way that we're building the, the future of the office and of the ways of working with women and, you know, underrepresented people in mind. I just want to comment specifically there on, you know, one of the products that you've actually highlighted, Laura, and that's LV. So I used LV's breast pump um, post-pregnancy and I still to this day am flabbergasted that a device that is so critical to not only women, but to all of humanity, because it's men who get fed from a breast as well, yes. is so backward, just so completely backward and so painful and so not user-friendly. And I've never been blind to female issues, but I've never, ever been a strong feminist and I'll go so far as and I know this is an extremely controversial thing that I'm going to say now and I've had many a heated debate but I there have been times in my life where I have gone so far as to say that I'm not a feminist because I genuinely think that very often the conversation about equal rights actually shifts the focus away from considering that females and males actually need different things you know so like the locker room example that you that you've just raised here is that women aren't naturally going to cluster around in a locker room all sweaty and get a deal done and we shouldn't be trying to get them into the locker room we should be as that ceo made a mission for himself to do is recreate a locker room type scenario where women naturally find themselves Yes, equal rights are important, but at the same time, there are significant differences. And like the LV breast pump issue is one of those topics. Men are not breastfeeding in the office, period, you know. And so I think when I became a mom, my thinking has definitely become more nuanced in this area because I so directly experienced the pain of it and the absolute frustration of it. But I do still stand by that point of, it's not only about equal rights, it's about what is actually right for each of the different genders. And in today's world, it's even beyond just male and female. It's actually the full LBGQ2 spectrum, you know, that, that we're talking about and that we have to address here. And so what needs to change? Like, what are the actual physical things that I need to be doing differently in work today to make my workplace better? 
where there is truly gender parity. You need to see the differences. I always get so frustrated by people that say, you know, I don't see color or whatever. And that, because actually that's, that's not the approach. What we need to do is, is see the fact that people are different and have different needs and therefore, uh, recognize that and put them into, and put them into place. So if you're talking about what, you know, what senior people at companies should be doing, um, and, and to be thinking about on this front, for me, I think, awareness of your unconscious biases is is, is a, an important first step but there's an, an intention action gap a lot of the time um, on what you're going to do and, and, and unconscious bias training just doesn't work a lot of the time I think there's a um, there's a wonderful uh, woman called Iris Bonet who's a um, a professor in at um, Harvard and who wrote a book called what works and she talks about a 30-year study of mid-sized companies in the US which showed that the huge investment that they'd done in conscious bias training hadn't necessarily resulted in greater levels of diversity. And her point was that actually what we need to do is make it easier for people to make those changes by um, setting the system up differently. And, you know, you can't, you can't change people, but you can change the system a lot of the time. What we suggest at Accelerate Her is, is, you know, thinking about, you know, using behavioral design tools to remove gendered, to make sure that your job descriptions are open to all, redesigning performance reviews. You know, there's so much, um, so much of the time performance reviews are based on an idea that you would you go in and um, you write what your thoughts about yourself are and then your manager goes and looks at that and, and, and writes their thoughts. And actually, if they've already seen your thoughts and you're, you tend to be, which often can be the case, women, you know, Cheryl Sandberg did a lot on this, around this, that you're, you know, you're more likely to often have imposter syndrome as a woman and put yourself down, then your results are going to be so much lower. And, and so the performance reviews will kind of keep you down versus a system where we change that. Or again, looking at kind of equalizing parental leave um, making sure that both men and women can take it equally. I think that's where we've got to look at, at as leaders of companies and basically change the structure and change the system so that everyone within there um, is recognised as being different, as seeing what they need. Laura, I know that Claire wants to chat to you about Accelerate Her, but just before we get there, you said something, you just you mentioned COVID-19 for the first time. I just want to ask you around... The year of 2020, I know that you you believe that COVID-19 has, has had a bigger or a more adverse effect for women. Could you maybe just elaborate on that? Yeah, it's such a tricky one. I think, you know, in some ways, the last year has been useful from a gender parity perspective in that, you know, one of the, one of the cornerstones that we've been kind of talking about as as being critical for gender parity is flexible work. And finally, 2020 has shown that that's possible. You know, presenteeism isn't necessary to get things done. And we can, um, you know, you can do your job from wherever. And, and as long as you've got kind of clear objectives set, I know that's something that you, that, that you guys do a lot around, um, you know, you can work remotely. And I think a lot of bosses would never have thought that before. And that's that's one huge step forward. But in many ways, it's been an absolute disaster for feminism because of the fact of the, the burden of childcare and household chores, which has, has really fallen overwhelmingly globally on women, um, and meant that they've, they've, a lot of cases had to set back their careers. You know, in the US, there's this term she session, which has been going around. And, and I think it's, is really, it's obvious that you know, women have lost their jobs in much higher numbers. And Cheryl Sandberg again talked about the triple shift, the fact that you are, there are just so many, so many things are landing on women. And so I think hopefully there is some kind of massive reckoning that will happen this year that will 
force governments and leaders to realize that, or finally realize that women are picking up all the slack in the system by kind of having free care, and not just for children, but for you know other dependents, and that actually that needs to be recognized and that that can't really carry on. And we need to be looking at childcare solutions that make sure that men and women can both work to to the degree that they need to and that it becomes everyone's responsibility rather than landing with women in this way. And I think that's that's what 2020 has, I, I think, really shown. And I, I hope, you know, we, we did a survey recently with Accelerate Her um, on women in tech and people found that their gender roles have been set back and often by sort of 10 to 20 years. Um, so there's a lot that we need to do to get ourselves out of this. Laura, let's turn our attention to Accelerator, which is where you are today, what you're heading up. And, you know, both you and I share a very big passion for this. Tell us about Accelerator and tell us why you chose to, to lead this organization. Thanks, Claire. And thank you so much for your amazing passion and support and for being a wonderful advisory board member. It, so Accelerate Her is a global network and event series for women in tech and particularly senior women and, and extraordinary women, women founders all over the world. It's been running for six years, founded by Brent Herberman and Poppy Gay, my, my co-CEO who's currently on maternity leave. And I joined four years ago. And, and over that time, we've built this pretty extraordinary community of you know, men and women who sort of support each other through events all around the world. And some of the stuff that's been the most exciting recently was actually when the pandemic hit last year. And we, we normally host events in person and, and our whole kind of USP is about creating catalytic connections and bringing people together to, to make change happen for them and for their businesses and their lives. At that point, we obviously had to completely pivot to virtual and, and to bring people together in a very different way. But we, we were so lucky in that we've, we've got a really exceptional community. So we're able to bring together folks like Martha Lane Fox talking about resilience or Beth Comstock from um, the former CMO of GE talking about marketing in crisis or Sonali de Riker on fundraising. And we found that people said that it was some of the use, most useful content and, and connections that they had over the, over that kind of early part of the pandemic. We went much bigger than that and actually started last year. We, we started to be the gender arm of some of the, the world's global tech festivals. So London Tech Week, um, Africa Tech Week and Asia Tech Week, which were really exciting and again tapped into some of the world's, I guess, biggest uh, thinkers. So we had Hillary Clinton join, which was one of the massive career highlights for me. And we had the executive director of UN Women join our our Africa event. Yeah, really kind of wonderful thought leaders bringing to our community their vision of the state of the world for women and how we can drive change together. And this year we're actually launching a community hub. So from going, from being in a place where we were bringing our network together around these kind of global moments and events, we're now building a hub to have people connect 24 seven, um, should be launching in the next couple of months. And we're really excited about making those catalytic connections happen all the time versus just in these kind of, um, yeah, regular events. Can you share with us a little bit the actual impact? Like, can you give us a few numbers in terms of what Accelerator has achieved to date? We tend to be, I suppose, more qualitative in what we're what we're doing. In that, so we've had folks come. We have things like rising stars. So we have um, women who pitch at our events and overwhelmingly have found that when they pitched, they've had they've often gone away with their 
with their startups fully funded by the end of it, um, we've had people come and say that they've met their co-founder or they met someone who, um, who took their business to the next level by being able to connect them to, uh, you know, new, new exciting opportunities, market opportunities. So we actually are overdue a full kind of report where we can show you those numbers and, and do a bit more of the kind of analysis. But at this stage, what we've done today has been a little more tailored and, and kind of curated and, and as I said, the kind of qualitative connections, which has been extraordinary to see. In Bank 50 it is, was actually founded by a woman called Janneke Niesen in the Netherlands. And it's now in nine different, different locations. And it's basically about showcasing extraordinary role models, women that, that you might not know about that are absolutely redefining the future of technology. We wanted, we get asked at Accelerate her all the time. You know, can you tell us a woman in AI or to speak on my panel or to do this? And, you know, constantly being told there aren't any women in this particular sector and actually we wanted to showcase they really are and so inspiring 50 is an awards award ceremony for in, in nine different regions so we do the uk but there's also we've also now taken on all the different regions from canada to um, south africa to europe and that's that's really exciting and i should also highlight another another element that we do at, at accelerate her which we're really really thrilled about which is called male champions of change and that was something that we built three years ago alongside um, Elizabeth Broderick, um, who's the UN Special Rapporteur for Gender, um, she built Male Champions of Change Initiative in Australia and has been running it for the last 10 years with the idea that actually a lot of the, t- a lot of the time men are the ones that are in the positions of power and actually women are, women is where a lot of the responsibility lies to, to make change, but they're not the ones that are, that hold that power. So, um, we love the principle of that and, and especially working in tech, we'd have so many incredible men coming to us all the time saying, I want to help, I want to do more. And you know, what can we do to change our business? And so we brought together um, the Male Champions of Change and Global Technology Group, which has around 10 leading male CEOs from you know, Bob Van Dyke from NASPERS to um, Mark Reed from WPP, Federico Marchetti from Uxnet Porte. And they they come together on a um, regular basis to drive change within their businesses, to listen and learn within their organizations and, and work with women that are driving change within, but then to make those changes themselves at that kind of top level, which means that they can move so much faster and um, and also can showcase what leadership, you know, what agenda leadership looks like. So that's another thing that we do as part of Accelerate Her. Laura, we're coming to the end of our time together and we started macro at the beginning of the conversation and then we went really micro into certain areas and I'd like us to pull up to a more macro view again and you genuinely prefer working on changing systems rather than people when it comes to very hard systemic issues. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? It goes back to my view that, you know, we need to be changing systems rather than individuals because that's how real change happens. And I think we know that that to change individuals, it starts at a much younger age. You know, that's kind of, that's working in the home and working with children and, you know, making sure that, that they have, you know, the role models and the equal 
parenting that they that, that they need. Whereas the what we can re- where we can really affect change on a kind of company level is on that systemic front. And again, that's you know looking at behavioral design tools and you know making it easy for businesses to do the and for and people to do the right thing versus trying to kind of rely on on individual change, which or individuals to make changes, which doesn't necessarily happen as much as we'd like because of that kind of intention action gap. So it's my last question, uh, Laura, and it's also around changing systems. You spoke about how businesses can affect it. What what can individuals do? I mean, is any any action that an ind- individual can be taking right now? Absolutely. So I think, you know, for one, it's about educating yourself on your own privilege. I love June Sapong, who has done a fair bit with Accelerate Her is uh, at the BBC, but also an extraordinary presenter. She talks about checking your circle. And, and I think that's really key. So, you know, does everyone in your, in your circle, your work circle or your friendship circle look like you? How do you make sure that you, that you make that different and that you bring in diverse points of view? Obviously, also as an individual, think about how you can be promoting diversity in the workplace, whether that's, you know, using your privilege to give other people a voice in meetings, recognizing where people are, are talking over people. We did a, a study across our whole workplace, an everyday sexism survey where we actually looked at where where people were feeling that they were facing everyday sexism and it's actually the kind of small what feels small but the the mansplaining or the or the saying hey can you would you mind just going to get a glass of water for this guest while I while I kick off the meeting and the talking over and meeting in in work in workplaces and those those are the bits that actually and make people feel left out and stuck behind. And so if you're a senior person, you know, you go get the water or, um, or you make sure that people's voices are heard. I think in the, in the workplace, that's critical. And then I say also buying from, um, using your buying power and uh, so buy from diverse owned businesses as individuals. That's really key. You know, we talk about that obviously from a, from a scales perspective, um, with, with large businesses, the supplier multiplier effect. Um, and a lot of organizations do that already. So whether that's Walmart, or Microsoft or Diageo, um, a lot of them have targets in place where they either buy from a certain percentage of women-owned businesses or they make sure that clients that or people that are that are pitching to them have to be diverse or yeah that they're thinking they're making sure that it's not just their own organization that they're working on but um but across the the organizations that they touch. Very interesting. There is certainly a lot that can be done which is obviously encouraging and important. There is. And I think if you're a leader, it's a really, there's, a, there's an awful lot that can be done. And um, I talked a bit about male champions of change and, and they have a really amazing approach, which is all around listening and learning. I think we know that one of the key elements of, of change is, is around leadership, recognizing the challenge and making it critical and making it key to their brand and everything they do. So if you're a leader, you should be talking about diversity and inclusion in, in almost every presentation that you give, whether that's internal or external, making it it's so critical to everything that you do. And, and employees will see that and customers will see that. And that's where people really start to to drive change. And we have a program where we, we get those leaders to to do a listen and learn where they'll they'll talk to women across the business and understand kind of firsthand what's going on for them and what that feels, whether they're a junior woman or a senior woman, um, and putting that into place. And then if you think about it from the pyramid perspective, so we say, start with that leadership, then embed that into the policies, you know, the structural change. So whether that's around recruitment or sponsoring that we talked about or setting targets, which is, you 
know, essential and that you do for every other part of your business. So, you know, why you would so critical that you do that for diversity inclusion too, or a shared care or flexible work, really kind of that embed piece. And then we talk about looking at, at scaling and how do you make the face of your organization show your values on that front? So, you know, looking at your website, it's extraordinary how many websites will just have a kind of sea of, of white men um, on there and that needs to change. How do you support others within the community? You know, especially if you're wanting to integrate more and, and get and recruit from different areas, then how are you, how, what kind of partnerships are you building and, and who are you supporting? And then that supplier multiplier piece. But a lot of that starts at the leadership piece. And so as an individual, thinking about it across that three-way pyramid is, is a really key place to start. Laura, we have come to the end of our time together. I'm going to say a very quick thank you and goodbye. And I'm sure that Claire would like to, to finish off, but it's been fantastic chatting to you and I've certainly had my eyes opened and, and learned a lot. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Laura, thank you so much. I, I think the most valuable piece of this conversation has actually just been this last snippet, along with a few snippets from early on in the conversation, where you really have made this practical. You know, I think there definitely is a general sense in the market that the whole gender parity issue is something that big corporates need to tackle and that it's not something that can incrementally be done in the smallest of organizations. And I think this conversation definitely highlights that that is the case and that change can happen in very small, but yet still very powerful forms. So thank you for coming to share some of the data with us. Thank you for bringing your whole self to this, despite not feeling the best today. We really do appreciate that and looking forward to sharing this with our audience. Oh, thanks so much, Claire. And thank you both. It's been really, really lovely speaking to you both and, and appreciate you having me on. Laura Stebbing, a passionate, driven individual using her life experiences to help further gender equality. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, we look forward to inviting you back sometime soon. Just a reminder for more information about WANDA and the integration services that they supply, you can visit their website. That's WNDYR.com. And so from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe. And we'll see you soon.